we're going to talk about a story that comes up in Mark 11, I think it is. Um, I have to apologise because I realised at like five that I hadn't done a PowerPoint. So once again, it's a boring one with just words on. Uh, this is not, this is not going to be a pattern, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. There's no prezi, there's no fun because I had ten minutes. So you've just got my notes presented on the screen. Um, so today we are talking about a story that I will read to you momentarily. Um, it is a story that's mentioned in all four gospel accounts. So this doesn't always happen, all right? So the four gospel accounts, you've got different authors writing, and they're uh, trying to make different points or draw out different things, so you end up with different stories in them, or like stories that pull out different facts. Um, so finding the same story in all four accounts kind of makes me go, ah, oh, we should really sit up and listen to what's going on here, clearly something important. So that's just a side note. Um, so yes, it's in all four gospels. So what I have done, rather than just looking at Mark, I, when I was prepping, I went through and read all four. So I have created an amalgam of all four of the accounts for you, and we're basically going to read them all together. And I debated whether this was heresy, and they decided that it was probably okay. Um, the, hog, the hog is silent, so it must be all right. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read you this combination of all four accounts. I've colour-coded it, as you can see, uh, in case you're anything I can't like tell me. Which is between Mark and Luke. There is no Luke on this particular screen. If that helps. Um, yeah, so I've just done that in case you're anything like me and you want to know where it came from. Uh, so I will read it to you. I have I have semi mashed them up. It's, it's, it's a remix. Well, I read I read one and then I read the next one and went up. Oh, so you didn't mash them. What? Yeah. It's not like ten minutes. I'll take you like twenty minutes. Ashley. Yes. Is John green or black? John is green. green. So we're going to start with John. Alright. Gentlemen. Thank you. Right, I'm going to read it to you. Let me know if I keep reading and it's not on the screen anymore because I'm doing two different things. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, which we've heard about from Toby today, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, all who were buying and selling there, and both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple that he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And as he taught them, that's the people generally who are around, not specifically the ones he'd just been having a conversation with. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Yet they couldn't find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. I'm not deaf. No. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So, dun, dun, dun. So what is happening here? Let us discuss. So God's people, who are called Israel or the Hebrews or the Jews, uh, God's city, which is Jerusalem, and God's temple within Jerusalem, are meant to point people to God. The whole world is meant to be able to look at Israel and see what the true God is like. Just like the whole world should be able to look at the church and see what God is like. God's people are meant to display him to the world. But in this story, the people are misusing the temple, and in doing so, they're presenting an incorrect picture of God to the world, and they're actually keeping people from God. So let's look at that. So if you think of this temple as having layers, I would say like an onion, but then the hog would make the noise. Um, (laughs) Think of the temple as having layers. So the innermost layer is called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And uh, only the high priest can go in there, nobody else. It's where the presence of God dwells. So only the high priest can go in, and he can only go in on one specific day every year. Um, and then moving out, you have kind of differing levels of access and who's allowed, who's allowed to come the closest. So you've got areas that only the priests can go, and then you've got areas that only ritually pure Jews can go. And then the very outermost layer, which is called the courts, is the place that Gentiles can go. So a Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew. If you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. Um, so it's, it's the only part of the temple into which the Gentiles are allowed, these courts. Uh, so that's what they know of the presence of God in this court. That is, that is where they can go to worship and to pray and to learn more about who this God is. That's, that's where they go for that. And the people have turned it into a marketplace. So they're selling animals for sacrifices, which might seem like a good idea, because under this old covenant that they're still under, you need to sacrifice an animal in order to be made right with God. Something has to die for your sin. So God has said under this old covenant, you can present animal sacrifices, and that will atone for your sin. Um, so it might seem like a good idea to be selling animals in the place that you've got to bring them to be sacrificed, but it's not about helping people to get close to God. It's about making money. So they, um, they have their own temple currency in the temple at this point. So you have to bring the money that is used throughout the rest of the city, the rest of the empire, and you have to bring that and you have to exchange it in the temple for the temple currency, and then you have to buy the animals there. And they're not going to give you a good exchange rate, like they're doing it to make money out of it. They're misrepresenting God. They're saying that God's interested in what you can bring, he, that you, you have to bring enough, that you have to earn your way into God's presence or God's favour. They're making it about money and about profit. And they've turned this place of worship and prayer into a marketplace. It's like they're cutting people off from God. They're stopping people from being able to praise him in this one place in the world that he has said you must come in order to do that. God says, you want to meet with me, you come to the temple. But they're coming to the temple and finding a marketplace. So Jesus comes along and he sees this and he's not okay with it. Uh, So he clears out the temple, he cleanses it, he returns it to a place where people can come and hear about God. He's teaching them about God. Uh, to a place where they can come and find healing and wholeness. He's healing people at the end of this story. And this is a picture of the cross. It's a temporary image of what Jesus is going to permanently do. He clears out sin and selfishness and greed, and he restores the way for human beings to relate to God, although on the cross that way becomes himself. 
here as well you've got Jesus healing people's temporary physical bodies but he's going to make a way to heal their eternal souls to give them true wholeness and true holiness as Nick was talking about earlier in the series so um, brief disclaimer before I continue when I was working on this talk I was feeling really unsettled about it um, I couldn't quite pin down why until I realised that a lot of what I'm going to say from here on out is based on my assumptions about what's going on in Jesus' head and his heart like during this story um, and they are educated guesses and they are the things that I want to say I think they're like good and wise advice for you good things I want to teach you but I'm not telling you what the passage says I'm telling you some of my thoughts based on my assumptions about the passage and you might be going why is that important why have you just wasted 30 seconds of my life telling me that um, but I think when you're listening to someone speaking, preaching it's, it's really important to know if what you're hearing is what the Bible says or what the preacher thinks because one of those carries a lot more weight than the other it's just a thing generally to be aware of um, so yes, having devalued everything I'm about to say let us press on so um, we are going to be talking about emotions and how we handle them for the rest of this because assumption number one is that Jesus gets angry here so it doesn't say in the text Jesus got angry but it says he's making whips and flinging tables and yelling at people to get out and I reckon he probably wasn't using his calm indoor voice when he was doing those things um, so I think it's a fair assumption to make that he got angry here but in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus himself equates anger to murder which is potentially confusing. Like, how can he be angry here and it's okay if anger is the same as murder and murder is obviously murder. So, I'm going to read the verse where he says this. Oh, good, it is there. It says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, If you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. These are relatively scary words. Um, but if we look closely at them, Jesus is not saying that anger itself is the issue. He's saying it's how we handle it that could be. So we'll be subject to judgment if we're angry. The judgment might be that we handled it well, that we handled it righteously. It's, it's how we handle our anger that's the thing. Anger itself, emotions in themselves, are not bad. Um, the good ones are really enjoyable. Like if you imagine life without contentment or affection or amusement, like those are good emotions and we like them and we'd like to keep them. Um, and then even the bad emotions, they can be really helpful. So like physical pain is a warning system to let you know that something's wrong, negative emotions can do the same thing. They can let you know that something's wrong. So for example, if I touch something that's hot, that, that's too hot, then it hurts. And that is telling me that I need to take some corrective action, I need to do something, I need to stop touching it before it damages me. Yeah? And emotions are the same, they can point out to us that something's wrong and that we might need to adjust something. So if I'm really irritable, then it points out to me that I need to get more sleep. So emotions... Huh? Or coffee. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try to cut down on the caffeine, so we're more irritable lately, but that's a whole separate thing. Um, so, Jesus is angry here because something is wrong. Um, in the story that we've just read in the temple, the thing that's wrong is external. So people are misusing God's temple, and that's not right. Uh, God is angry about injustice. He's angry about sin. So, sometimes for us, the same thing is true. The, the thing that's wrong is an external circumstance. 
But there are other times when the thing that is wrong is more internal. So it might be that our beliefs don't line up with God's truth. Uh, so again, some examples. I know for myself, if I'm worried about money, if I'm experiencing that negative emotion, then it, the thing that's wrong is internal, and it's, it's my own beliefs. I'm not believing that God is going to provide for me, like he's promised that he will. Or if I'm really stressed about work, then it tells me I might be getting my sense of value and purpose from my job. Um, so it's like if work doesn't go well, that means that I'm a failure or I'm useless. Like I'm, I'm letting it say something about my identity that it has no right to say. Uh, so emotions, emotions aren't wrong. They help us. They can point us towards something that is wrong that might need adjusting. And that can be internal or external. Um, so emotions are a really helpful gauge and a warning system, but we can handle them in a way that's not right. It says in Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. So it's not saying emotions are wrong, it's not saying don't be angry, but it is saying that you can sin in your anger. We can handle our emotions in a way that's sinful. Again, we're subject to judgment when we're angry because sometimes the way that we handle our anger is wrong. So we're gonna look at how Jesus handles his own anger in this temple scene what we have read, um, because he doesn't sin in his anger. The Bible says that Jesus has never sinned, so there can't be anything sinful in the way that he acts here. So just a couple things that jumped out at me when I was reading through it um, about how we can learn to handle our emotions in a godly way. So the first thing is that he feels it. So Jesus doesn't just squish down his anger and carry on like nothing's happened, yeah? And again, I'm assuming this based on how he acts. He doesn't just kind of walk out and leave him to it. Like, no, everything is fine, I'm fine, this is all good, there is no problem here. Like, he doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't get on his knees and worship for an hour to try and make the bad feelings go away. Like, he, he feels his anger, he lets himself feel it, and then he acts based on it. I think one of the worst things that we can do with our emotions is to suppress them. Um, my car, if I ignore the scraping sound that the brakes on my car are making, then I'll end up wearing right through my brake pads and suddenly I'm driving with no brakes. Obviously I've never done that. Um, or <laughs> my, so my brother, Dom, he is a runner um, and he injured his knee a while back. And so if he's running and his knee starts hurting and he just kind of ignores it and runs through the pain, then he ends up aggravating that old injury worse and he damages himself even more than he did before. And I think it's the same with our emotions. If we just ignore them, then whatever's causing them doesn't get dealt with damage just gets worse. So Jesus never ignored or suppressed his emotions. You just read the Gospels. He's got the whole range in there. The Psalms are full of people not ignoring or suppressing their emotions. We are we're meant to feel them. Like they're there to be felt. God has given us our emotions and it's dangerous when we try not to. Burying your feelings doesn't make them go away. It's like burying them alive. They'll just find a way to dig themselves back out. So feel it. And I don't mean by that that you should just lash out at the people around you or at yourself, because that's not a good way of dealing with how you feel. That's essentially just as damaging. What I mean when I say feel it is go to God with it. You can be really honest and real with him about how you feel, like Neil was saying earlier. Like prayer can be angry yelling. You can just scream. Prayer can be sobbing. Like God, God wants that. He wants all of that. He wants all of you. He doesn't just want the edited highlights or the nice shiny holy bits like he wants all of your mess he wants all of your emotions he wants all of you so feel them and invite him into that tell him how you feel second thing jesus does i think we can learn from is he thinks it through 
say. Jesus' response, I think, is really thoughtful and considered. So he takes the time to go away and make a whip. Or, you know, just to sit down in the corner and make a whip. Like, he, he takes the time to do that. He doesn't just kind of pick up the nearest heavy object and start flinging things. Like, he, he thinks it through. He considers what needs to be done. He doesn't just lash out without thinking. Um, more Bible for you. It says in Proverbs, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. And then in Ecclesiastes, Don't be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of or lodges in the heart of fools. And I think the wisdom of those verses is just what Jesus is displaying here. He's not quickly provoked. He doesn't give full vent and explode in anger. He thinks, and he responds really well, and he brings calm in the end. So what about us? How can we look at Jesus' example here and apply that to our own lives? Um, we're going to segue very briefly to Jonah, and he's going to help us look at this. Uh, so, in case you don't know, Jonah, backstory. God has told, and God wants to tell, a city called Nineveh, through Jonah, that their sin's about to catch up with them, and they're about to be destroyed. Uh, but Jonah doesn't really want to go, probably a whole host of reasons, among them the fact that he really hates these people and doesn't want to tell them that. Um, he doesn't want to tell them anything, he doesn't want to go see them, he just doesn't want to. He probably also is a bit like me and likes being at home and doesn't want to go travel across the country. But that's, again, just me. Um, so he doesn't want to tell them. So he actually tries to run away. He goes in the opposite direction to the direction God has told him to, gets caught in a storm, gets eaten by a whale, and then ends up in Nineveh telling them what God told him to say in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, he's kind of wandering around like, you're all going to die! Um, uh, but then something very interesting happens, and the people repent. So they turn away from their evil and they turn back to God. So at the end of Jonah 3 says this. Sean, is that a question or is that a... Is it Jonah and the whale? Yes, okay. it is. Uh, end of Jonah 3 says this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. There's a whole preach in there. But we're not going to do it today. But to Jonah, this is in chapter 4 now, like me and need to know that. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall, which means to prevent or to stop, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? This is a rhetorical question, okay? God is not scratching his head about this and asking for Jonah's opinion. He wants to get Jonah to think. He's not saying, Jonah, anger's bad, stop it. He, he wants him to think about what is causing his anger. <coughs> he wants to get Jonah to think it through. So Jonah's angry because something's wrong, as we've established. Emotions can point us to something that's wrong but he has misdiagnosed it. Jonah thinks that what is wrong is something external. He thinks the problem is that God has spared Nineveh. But God wants him to see that the problem is in fact internal, and it's actually Jonah's own perspective. I actually had God ask me this question. Um, I don't remember exactly what the situation was that I was angry about, but I remember him asking me the question. Um, kind of something you don't really forget. 
So initially, I thought I was in the right, obviously, because I'm a human being and we always think we're in the right, and that I had the right to be angry at this person, but I had to surrender that, and I had to repent of some wrong attitudes and beliefs and bow to God's perspective, to what he says is right or wrong rather than my own opinion. So my anger in that situation functioned as this warning system to let me know that something was wrong, but God helped me to see that the thing that needed to shift was me. So we need to take the time to figure out what's going on behind our emotions, to figure out the cause. Why are we angry or sad or afraid? Is the thing that's wrong an external circumstance or an internal perspective? Do we need to bring our beliefs into line with God's truth? Feeling anger, feeling anger isn't wrong, but if we just run with it, if we don't take the time to assess the cause of it and what it's really pointing us to, then we can end up headed down the wrong path. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to us, but it leads to death. So if we just run with any of our emotions, if we just believe the view of the world that they're showing us, or we lash out at other people, or we just respond without thinking, then it can lead us down this wrong path. It can lead us towards death and destruction. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Simply reacting from a human perspective is not going to produce the righteousness that God desires. It produces pain and destruction. It produces the things of death rather than the things of righteousness. So we need to think it through. We need to gain God's perspective on the situation. We need to be slow to anger. And just as an encouragement to you, naturally, I do not do this. I, um, I used to fly off the handle all the time. Like I would have described myself as an incredibly angry person. Like it just took the very smallest thing to set me off. But God has been changing me. And I can now look really calmly at my own anger and assess why I'm angry. Like, is it actually that so-and-so is an idiot? Or is it that something in me needs to change? And I don't always choose to do that. I don't always choose to deal with my anger that way. I thought we were going for the hog. Yeah. <laughs> like, what have I said? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't... <laughs> we'll just wait. We'll wait for that. It's okay. I don't always choose to think it through and to approach my anger well like that, but I am always empowered to. The Holy Spirit lives in me. He's my helper, just like he is for you. And he's always willing to help you respond well to your emotions. He did it for Jesus here, everything Jesus did, empowered by the Spirit. He does it for me, and you can ask him to help you with this too. So, lastly, um, Jesus acts in holiness. So in this example, I think we see it in two ways. Uh, the first of these is that he doesn't hurt people, he attacks the sinful practices. So back in this story, he was driving out the sellers, but he wasn't beating them up. Yeah? He was turning over tables, he wasn't ripping people's arms out of their sockets. <laughs> His anger is directed at the sin, not at the sinner. He's loving people, even as he hits out at their sin. So that's one way we can act in holiness, we can love people, even in our anger. Secondly, Jesus' motives are pure. He, like, he never sinned. And sin is a matter of the heart as much as anything else. So we can know that Jesus' heart and his motives were pure, just like his actions. So he's not motivated by selfish desire for other people's approval, for other people to think, oh, wow, look at that Jesus guy. He's so strong, he can just clear out a whole temple. He's not motivated by that. <laughs> and it's not about him trying to earn God's approval or God's favour in any way. Like, ooh, God's going to think I'm so awesome if I've done this. There's none of that in him. His aim is just to restore God's order. He does it because he wants the glory of God to be displayed. He wants God to be represented rightly. He wants people to be able to worship him. So again, what about us? How can we apply that in our own lives? We're going to use that verse. 
Uh, so Ephesians says, in your anger do not sin. In case you're wondering, it's a quote from Psalm 4, that little bit. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. It's that first bit, in your anger do not sin. We need to make sure that when we do act, our motives are God-focused, that they're not selfish. What is your goal? This is a question to ask yourself when you're thinking it through and trying to figure out how to respond to something. What's your goal? What's the outcome of your actions going to be? Are you aiming to bring more of the kingdom of God in the way that you respond, or are you serving yourself and your own agenda? Don't sin in your anger. Don't put yourself above God in the way that you respond. Make sure that he's Lord of your life in this moment too, and obey his command to love others, even in your anger. And then do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Don't let anger settle. Don't let it take root. When anger takes root in you, it becomes bitterness and unforgiveness, and those things start twisting you up inside. Don't give the devil that foothold of influence in your mind and in your life. Don't let anger take up residence in your heart. Don't even go to sleep if you're angry, Paul says here. Like, deal with it really quickly, but deal with it well. I think surrendering it to Jesus is a really holy way to respond to any of your emotions. And dwelling on his truth and letting that take root instead of anything else. So, I have been talking primarily about anger, as I'm sure you've spotted if you've been listening to me. Um, but I think that these are good principles just with any emotion. Let yourself feel it. Don't shove it down or try to ignore it as if it were weak to feel somehow. Our emotions are not weak, they are human, and it is a great strength and a great joy and a great help to us that we have them. Think it through. What is this emotion telling you? Is it an external or an internal thing that needs to shift? Do your perspective and your beliefs line up with God's truth here? And act in holiness. Surrender to Jesus. Make sure your motives are God-focused, that they're not selfish or self-serving. Act in love. Seek his kingdom. Respond in a way that brings his kingdom. And dwell on his truth and let that take root rather than anger or anything else. We cannot control our emotions, but we can control how we respond to them. And whatever we feel, we can respond in a holy and sinless way by the power of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus relied on and who now lives in us. So, I'm done talking. Um, we are... We are... We're going to take...